0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of the channel, and each week we scour the Internet looking for interesting books, and we interview the authors of those books. And this week, I'm happy to say we have David Williams on the show, and we'll be talking about his terrific book, I Freed Myself, African American Self-Emancipation in the Civil War Era. David, thank you for being on the show.
1: Oh, Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Great. Could you kick off
0: the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself?
1: Well, I've been teaching at Valdosta State University since about 1988. Uh, I'm from the South generally. I was sort of an army brat. We lived uh, a number of places. Uh, but I suppose living living in the South, growing up in the South, it's, it's hard to get away from history. But it's on kind of every street corner, every courthouse square um and even growing up i don't think i was real comfortable with the versions of history i was seeing because it didn't always match the faces around me it was largely white history but black history was sort of missing from the equation and even as a young person i think i i think i got that uh it was only later on in 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 college and graduate school that I I got little bits and pieces of what I thought I was missing. Uh, Got interested in that and just uh, researched more about it. Ended up, uh, for various reasons, I think, majoring in uh, or having my major fields in Southern history, Old South generally, uh, Civil War in particular. And I think that sort of missing history uh, that I felt i was i uh, wasn 't getting and growing up I, I sort of gravitated toward that, and I think that th- this this book is sort of the culmination of that mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so tell us why you wrote
0: i freed myself african american self emancipation in the Civil War era why this book and not some other
1: uh, well, largely because i think i think a, a growing disconnect between what I was coming to know as, as a graduate student and as a, as a professor, and what my students didn't seem to know, um, I, I guess it, it largely, to an extent, focused on Lincoln, but I, I didn't really want to focus the book on Lincoln, because the book's not about Lincoln. It's about the contributions of African Americans to uh, to the growing sectional crisis, uh, the freedom process. Um, but. Wow, my students just didn't seem to be terribly aware of that. Uh, in, in fact, a few few years ago, when I first started started working on this book, uh, for my incoming freshman students in my, my U.S. history survey classes, uh, first day of class I would have them write an essay about their understanding of the whole emancipation process, and it largely boiled down to, well, Lincoln wrote the Emancipation Proclamation, freed the slaves, and that was sort of that. Uh, there, there were a few that did seem to have a sense that African Americans were at least marginally involved in the process, but nobody seemed to have a, at least my students didn't have seem to have a clear understanding of that, despite the fact that you know, decade, for decades, uh, historians have been emphasizing uh, bl- uh, the role of blacks in the process, uh, at, at least to some extent. I think some historians still still tend to focus on Lincoln, uh, because, because he's just a, a fascinating figure. I mean, I think biography of any sort is fascinating to readers generally, and historians in particular. Um, but... But African Americans are very, very intimately involved in the emancipation process—not just during the Civil War, but before the Civil War and and bringing on the Civil War—and and and it's not as if Americans of the Civil War era weren't aware of that. I mean, the the whole issue of all of African Americans in the army. Was, was a huge issue at the time, and everybody knew that there had been, you know, hundred, uh, a couple of hundred thousand uh, African Americans involved in, in the U.S. military. It's really only in the post-war period that that sort of seems to be written out of the, the general narrative of history, with sort of white northerners claiming to have sort of erased the sin of slavery from, uh, from the nation. Uh, to such an extent that by the time we get into the early twentieth century, uh, you have this one biography of grant um, who that uh, in which the author wrote that uh... And, and i'm quoting here that negroes or paraphrasing uh... that negroes were the only people in the history of the world that never lifted a finger to free themselves they just sat around playing banjos and singing songs and waiting for some yankee to come along and free them. Uh and and that really wasn't the case at all the, um, That uh, african-americans enslaved african-americans were uh... intimately involved in in the freedom process by the act of escape, by the act of resistance within the South during the war, and that's that's a story that just never seemed to really get into the general narrative mm-hmm. uh, i think even even these days uh, when when I poll my students about that uh, they they just don't seem to quite be aware of it. Uh, so that, that's mainly the reason I wrote this book, to try to try to increase awareness of the role of African-Americans in the in the freedom process. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So uh, let's begin to tell the story by setting the stage. Um, and I hope you don't mind if I re- rehearse some, some of these things that 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 um, I, think, I think most people who listen to this podcast will know. And I guess the very first one and this, again, is the traditional view. It puts Lincoln at the center of it. Um, Link, when Lincoln was elected president, he was openly hostile to slavery. Correct.
1: Uh, certainly, openly hostile to the expansion of slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually repeatedly said in 1860 during the presidential campaign that he was no threat to slavery where it existed directly. Uh, he just didn't want to see the uh, see slavery expanded. Uh, now he he he. he never said slavery was right and in in private writings uh he he would he was very very forthright about his feeling that slavery was wrong but as a matter of uh, of public policy uh, he was very o- very open about uh, about not wanting to see slavery expanded into the territory mm-hmm. but stressing that he was no threat to slavery where could existed, And this wasn't just aimed at a southern audience to try to dissuade uh, white southerners from supporting secession. It was aimed at a northern audience, too, uh, that although they, uh, although white northerners tended to, um, uh, tended to oppose the expansion of slavery uh, for a variety of both economic and racist reasons, the uh, they largely tended to support slavery where it existed in the South, again, for both economic and racist reasons. Uh, it kept most blacks trapped in the South. Uh, white Northerners were, were generally very much opposed to, uh, to black immigration to the North uh, because they thought it threatened jobs, uh, and again, for racist reasons as well. Um, and so, so Lincoln knows he's got that to deal with, uh, with also. Um, but the, the through the eighteen fifties, the crux between slaveholders in the South and white Northerners generally tends to be the issue of expansion mm-hmm. of slavery into the territories. Uh, not so much because slaveholders are real eager to take slavery into the territories, uh, but because they're largely feeling pressure from. Slaves in the South themselves. Uh, Slave resistance is on the rise. Uh, Not so much outright rebellion, because that's sort of collective suicide. Um, But individual acts of resistance, uh, including subtle resistance like uh, feigning ignorance, feigning illness, But all the way to slaves being pushed to to outright, uh, outright murder of uh, of slaveholders. Uh, That was on the rise in the 1850s, Uh, and so slaveholders are becoming increasingly nervous about slave resistance, uh, and growing numbers of slaves who uh, who are increasingly resistant, Uh, and so they're they're looking for ways to expand slavery. into into the western territories uh, again not because they themselves are eager to, to go into the western territories because I think most most slaveholders were generally educated and generally aware that uh, the, the western territories just weren't suitable for large scale cotton agriculture but on the other hand slaveholders uh, in the south only constitute 25% of the white population 75% of Southern whites own no slaves at all.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so one, str- one thing that uh, that slaveholders are struggling with is the question of how do you keep 75% of the white population supporting slavery if they don't own slaves? Uh, one, one factor in that is encouraging racism. Another factor is, in, is uh, encouraging the expansion of slavery into the territories, or at least keeping the idea of the expansion of slavery into the territories open, of uh, essentially telling white southerners that, uh, who didn't own slaves, that 75% who largely couldn't afford land, couldn't afford slaves, mainly because land was becoming, uh, becoming increasingly scarce in the South, telling these folks, well, look, even if you can't afford good land in the South... Uh, we'll keep slavery open in the territories, and you can afford land out there. And because the price of slaves is largely tied to the price of land, if the price of land goes down, maybe the price of slaves will go down. So even if you don't own slaves in the South, you can you you can own slaves in the West. So keep supporting slavery. We're going to open up slavery uh, in in the West. Northerners, on the other hand, are largely opposed to that, especially uh, the poor factory workers in the North who don't view factory work in the 19th century as anything to be envious of, and largely view a rural existence as uh, as, uh, as something that, that they would like to have, that uh, they would like to buy themselves a farm or get cheap land in the West. because Land prices in the North by that time were, were going up as well. No, No or very few factory workers were ever going to have enough money to buy enough land to to live on, and so they're they're looking forward, many of them, to expanding, uh, to moving into the west, setting up homesteads for themselves. And when they do that, when they get there, they don't want to have to compete with uh, with slave labor, uh, and again, for, for racist reasons, they just don't want blacks in the west generally. Um, and and so and. And northerners generally, uh, uh, certainly uh, businessmen, financiers, anybody who has wealth in the, in the North uh, either you know, owns a textile factory or, uh, or has investments in, in uh, textile factories. In fact, in, in 1860, the biggest industry in the North is the textile industry, and the biggest part of that textile industry is the cotton textile industry. The cotton's coming from the South, it's being produced by slave labor, uh, and so you know, northern financiers uh, and, and manufacturers generally tend not to openly oppose slavery, and, and some even to support it, uh, because it, ke- it keeps cheap cotton flowing to the North. But again, they don't want to see slavery expanded to the West uh because they view the west as an area of vast natural resources that they want to exploit for themselves uh and they they don't want to have to compete with slaveholders for that land i think that that's a lesser aspect of it uh the more politically volatile aspect of it is has to do with the, the vast majority of white northerners who again although they they don't really oppose slavery in the south they don't want to see it expanded into the west now how how do the blacks play into all of this? Well, by by the time we get into the 1850s, uh, lots of blacks are escaping to the north. That's putting pressure uh, that on on, uh, on northern whites who again don't want to see blacks migrating to the north. Uh, although they're they're escaping there anyway, uh, and they're being followed by. Uh, by slave catchers, and the, the, who are sort of turning the North into a battlefield uh, over over slavery. Uh, northerners frequently respond with personal liberty laws that basically say to slave catchers, you know, we don't want your kind here. Don't uh, you don't make the, the North a battleground over slavery. Um, and they certainly want to keep slavery out of the territory. So again, getting back to Lincoln, this is what he's facing in, in 1860. Uh, white Northerners who don't necessarily oppose slavery where it exists, but don't want to see it expanded uh, into the territories. Um, and, nor- and, and slaves are constantly putting, uh, putting pressure on that fault line between freedom and slavery uh, by... By escaping to the north when when opportunity presents, um, and slaveholders, on the other hand are trying to are trying to press for the expansion of slavery in the western territory so that's that 's where the real crux comes mm-hmm. in fact, uh, in terms of preserving slavery in the south, Congress in, 18, uh, in early eighteen sixty one as the secession crisis is going on, as uh, southern states one by one are leaving the union. Uh, they're, they're desperate for compromise to keep the co- keep particularly the cotton states in the union. And Congress is under a lot of pressure from northern financiers to keep the Deep South in the union, to keep uh, the cotton-producing states in the union. Because if, if they're out of the union, the least that's going to mean is that cotton prices are going to go up because of export taxes, import taxes. Uh, the worst it could mean and, and this was viewed by some as a possibility, could be a cotton embargo on the North, which would ruin the North's largest industry. So there's, uh, there's that fear among Northern industrialists. So they're putting pressure on Congress to keep the cotton states in the Union by compromise if possible, by force if necessary, you know, just whatever it takes. Uh, and one compromise that was offered, one, uh, see, one that actually was passed through Congress, the only one that was actually passed through Congress, was something called the Corwin Amendment, uh, issued by a, uh, an Ohio congressman, a Republican congressman named Corwin. Uh, it It passed the Senate. It passed the House of Representatives. It was sent out to the states for ratification. And this amendment would have guaranteed slavery in the South, in the states where it already existed, would have guaranteed it forever. Hmm. Uh, And actually, there was a provision in the Corwin Amendment that, that said that no subsequent amendment to the Constitution could... Wipe out the Corwin Amendment. Uh, this would have this would have been the Thirteenth Amendment.
0: Yeah,
1: that's interesting. Congress uh, actually, Cong- Congress, both houses of Congress passed that amendment uh, with a Republican majority. I that's, mean, that, that's that pretty that's remarkable. Easy. And I, I even more remarkable yeah. is just just as this was being sent out to the states, uh, March fourth, eighteen sixty 1861, uh, Lincoln's first inaugural address, he actually mentions the Corwin Amendment uh, and says, I uh, "Fully support such an <laughs> amendment. Uh, have no objection to uh, making slavery uh, permanent and irrevocable in the states where it already exists." Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So here, here you've got Lincoln, you know, desperate to avoid civil war, desperate to uh, to compromise, uh, coming into into office, saying, "Hey, I'm." fully supportive of guaranteeing slavery in the slave states forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, is you know, as long as that helps preserve the union. And that's mm-hmm. that's his primary objective, preserving yeah. the union, keeping the cotton states in the Union by, by whatever means necessary. So really as we get into eighteen sixty one to sixty two, the story I'm most interested in uh, and this is sort of the heart of the book, although I, I go from the pre-war period to the post-war period. Uh, the heart of the book deals with, or one one major theme of the book deals with the period between Lincoln's inauguration in March of 1861 and the Emancipation Proclamation just over a year later. I mean, how is it that Lincoln moves from supporting a 13th Amendment that would have guaranteed slavery forever to... An Emancipation Proclamation by September of the next year.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: So and- let's 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 stop just there for a second. That was a very good
0: correction to what I said. Um, and <laughs> incidentally, uh, your mention um, of uh, the expansion of slavery and the issue of expansion of slavery reminds me of a bumper sticker that I saw. I'm from Kansas. A bumper sticker that I saw once that said, um, "Kansas protecting people against Missouri since 1854."
1: And that's that's largely what what leaving Kansas was all about in 1855, 1856. Yeah, it was a little... miniature uh, civil war that was going on in
0: Kansas. A little interstate rivalry there, protecting Mm -hmm. people against Missouri. Um, So let me just ask one more basic question, just so we know exactly where we are. And again, this is something that I think needs to be uh, sort of uh, cleared up. I, I don't know if that's the right word. Lincoln gets elected, and it is because Lincoln gets elected that the South succeeds.
1: Uh, that that's the precipitating factor. Okay. Uh, um, but getting back to the the point I was making a minute yes, ago, go the question of you know how does how does Lincoln move from being a supporter of the Corwin Amendment, one that would uh, an amendment the Thirteenth Amendment to the Constitution that would have guaranteed slavery forever in the in the states that existed where it existed, how did he move from that in March of 1861 to the Emancipation Proclamation, or the Preliminary Proclamation, in September of 62. And largely the answer to that question, it's African Americans themselves. Because early in the war, Lincoln makes the point that, again, he continues making the point, I'm no threat to slavery where it exists. Uh, This is not a war to free the slaves. This is only a war to preserve the Union. Uh, Congress backs him up in that uh, with the... uh, uh, the Johnson-Crittenden Amendment, uh, or the resolution, saying that uh, that this is a war again to preserve the Union, not to free the slaves. And early on, when slaves try to escape to Union lines, uh, Lincoln's orders to to the army are to turn them away, mm-hmm. return, send them back to the farm, as one one general put it. Mm-hmm. Um, but let me, let me pause just for one second and no, ask a question ahead. that
0: I'm sure people are asking. If it is the case, and I'm sure it is the case, that Lincoln again and again said, I'm not interested in dismantling slavery at all, and in fact we will we'll sign an amendment that makes it permanent,
1: but why did the South succeed? It goes back to that expansion issue mm-hmm. uh, against the slaveholders. You know, only 25 percent of the population in the South. 75 uh, percent of white Southerners are are you know, not slaveholders. Mm-hmm. They're looking for anything they can grab hold to to keep non slaveholder supporting uh, slavery, and to give slaves less free territory to escape into. Mm-hmm. And so, if you know, if they can make you know three uh, three quarters of the of the country-slave territory, they certainly want to do that. And in 1857, the Supreme Court obliges with the Dred Scott case yes. that not only says that slavery can exist in the territories, that slaves can carry their slaves into the territories, but it also uh, decides, and it's no surprise that this should be the case, since most uh, most of the Supreme Court's uh, members at that time, I think... Uh, I believe it was seven of the nine, uh, were actually southerners or connected in some way with slave-holding families. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, they, they said uh, under the terms of the Fifth Amendment, slaves are property. Property can, can be carried anywhere the Constitution holds force, including the free states. Uh, now, again, the Dred Scott actually wipes out the whole concept of a free state. There are, under Dred Scott, there are no mm-hmm. free states and slave states. They're all slave states. Mm-hmm. Um, and so slaveholders are, are kind of getting what they want from the, uh, from the Supreme Court, very much getting what they want. But just three years earlier, uh after the passage of the Kansas Nebraska act which had done away with the Missouri compromise which allowed for the possibility of slavery in Kansas and Nebraska uh northerners had been flocking to this new political party called the republican party that was dedicated to keeping slavery out of the territories uh it was composed of mainly old line whigs some democrats a few old ab- uh, abolitionist Liberty Party men who could kind of stomach making an alliance with people who weren't against slavery but just wanted to keep that out of the territories. Um, and here you've got this uh, this new Republican Party that won most of the states in the North in the 1856 election. And after Dred Scott, even more Northerners sort of flocked to the Republican Party. And so... For for some white white Southerners, particularly slaveholders, the handwriting seems to be on the wall. I think for for those who are politically astute, uh, they get this sort of creeping feeling that, well, as more Northerners flock to the Republican Party because they're promising to keep slavery out of the territories, the next president's probably going to be a Republican. And the one after that and the one after that, because the North outnumbers uh, out the South in terms of voting strength by two to one. Mm-hmm. Now, we've gotten what we wanted in the Dred Scott case, Southerners are saying, uh, particularly slaveholders. But that really can't last forever, because at some point, you know, the, the president, uh, the vacancy, as vacancies become available on the Supreme Court, uh, some Republican president is going to appoint... Some justice, and another justice, and another justice. That's going to overturn Dred Scott,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and that wouldn't have been, uh, and it wouldn't be in a legal sense. It wouldn't be difficult to overturn Dred Scott, because the court based the Dred Scott decision on the Fifth Amendment, that said, you know, no one can be deprived of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. The Supreme Court at the time defined due process of law uh, as essentially, you know, maybe putting someone on trial, depriving them of property because they were uh, they committed some crime. Uh, but a future court could define due process of law as simply the legislature declaring that this is free territory or a free state. Mm-hmm. And at some point, if some Republican president. Uh, kept uh, nominating justices to the Supreme Court that would rule in that way, then at some point uh, the ability of slaveholders to push this issue of slavery in the territories was just going to go away, which would rob them of a major tool uh, that they had to keep white non-slaveholders supporting slavery. Uh, And so they they see the handwriting on the wall. At at some point, slavery is going to be limited to the South, and a mantra among slaveholders is that slavery must expand or die, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I see. and not just uh, just because of white non-slaveholders, but because of slaves themselves. Uh, they knew the slave, uh, slaves were increasingly escaping, uh, not uh, not uh, just permanently, but temporarily as well. Uh, temporary escapes could turn into permanent escapes. Uh, if slavery, is, the more restricted slavery is, the easier it's going to be for African Americans to escape. Uh, and so they're really worried about this issue of, well, you know, the, the Republican Party in the North is growing. Uh, we need to get out of the Union if a Republican president is elected. Even if he's not a threat directly to slavery, he is a future threat to the expansion of slavery, which is a threat to slavery itself. Because of this mantra of uh, slavery, must expand or die. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. So then, basically, the South uh, refused Lincoln's uh, proposal of compromise.
1: Well, by the time Lincoln, by the time the uh, Corwin Amendment was passed, mm-hmm. uh, seven of the Deep South states had already already seceded. Yeah, uh, th- despite the uh, despite opposition to it. I mean, there were mm-hmm. um, oh, in in Georgia, for example, uh, the. The vote was very close. In fact, uh, a very slight majority of Georgia voters actually opposed seceding from the Union. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but I South see. Carolina had already seceded. Mm-hmm. Uh, Alabama, Mississippi had already seceded. Uh, so had Florida. Uh, so the the Georgia convention uh, actually took the state out of the Union, despite the uh, despite the vote. Mm-hmm. Uh, really, only in Alabama, Mississippi. And South Carolina, can we say with any certainty that a majority of voters supported taking uh, their states out of the Union? Uh, in Louisiana, it's questionable, and Texas is very questionable, and Florida, certainly questionable. Uh, in Georgia, seems to be a slight majority voting against secession. Mm-hmm. And so by, by the time we get to the Coron Amendment, uh, the, the Deep South has already formed the Confederate States of America. Uh, and at, at that point, you know you've got a whole cadre of politicians dedicated to keeping the, the Confederacy in existence. Yeah. Um, and, and feeling that, uh, that they can probably do so, especially after uh, Lincoln uh, calls for seventy five thousand volunteers after the firing on Fort Sumter. Um, and uh, Tennessee, North Carolina, Virginia, Arkansas—they secede from the Union as well. So it—it it looks like it, it's going to be an uphill battle for Lincoln, and it is for a long time, uh, largely because uh, of, um, of the slavery issue and the question of what do we do with all these hundreds of thousands of escaping slaves. And this is really get, gets to the crux of the book.
0: yeah. Let's actually concentrate on that now, and let's yeah. um, get, get us to. The, that was all more or less background. Uh, what I want to understand is, and you explained it very well in your book, and I want the listeners to understand, is, is how it is the case that the, the these slaves escape, and where they go, how they are received, and how their presence uh, affects Lincoln's thinking on the issue of emancipation.
1: Yeah, this is something that evolves over a period of more than a year, from early 1861 to uh, to about mid to late 1862. Uh, And it's, to some extent, still not even settled then. Early in the war, Lincoln makes the point, and Congress makes the point, this is not a war against slavery, only a war to preserve the Union. And that being the case, and they they consider secession illegal, therefore these states are still in the Union. The uh, Union, all all laws of the United States still hold forth, including the Fugitive Slave Act of 1860, which obligated northern law enforcement to assist in returning escaping slaves, uh, including officers of the, of the U.S. Army. So when early in the war, when slaves escaped to uh, Union lines, which they do by the tens of thousands uh, from the spring of 1861 on, from the very beginning of the war, uh, Northern Army officers try to turn them away. So, no, this is not a war against slavery. You're not free. Go back to the plantation. The problem they face, of course, is that you know they're escaping largely from behind Confederate lines uh, and blacks like say, well, good luck making me go back. You're going to take me <laughs> through the Confederate Army to get there? Uh, and the problem is they just won't go back. They refuse to be enslaved. And uh, in May of 1861, you know, faced with that refusal of blacks to be re-enslaved, to go back into slavery, uh, certainly, certainly, they're not going voluntarily. Ben Butler, uh, Union general, who ironically is not a Republican, he's he's a Democrat. Uh, he's had actually at. Uh, he had actually, the Democratic Convention supported Jefferson Davis, of all people, for president of the United States but now he's a politically appointed general uh, in Virginia uh, in May of 1861 at Fortress Monroe on, on the Chesapeake Coast and he's saying, well, we've got all of these slaves escaping to our lines, even if we could send them back you know what are the Confederates going to do with them? Well, they're going to grow food for the Confederacy. They're going to grow. Uh, they're going to be put to work on fortifications. Let's call these folks contraband of war, and let them and uh, keep them ourselves. Put them to work on uh, Union fortifications. Uh, Secretary of War Simon Cameron, uh, who's a, a pretty pretty strong abolitionist himself, he fully fully supports this policy. And Congress finally comes around to it by August with what was called the First Confiscation Act, saying that, okay, blacks who escaped the Union lines, uh, they will be considered uh, essentially contraband of war. You know, blacks weren't, weren't particularly happy with that designation because that doesn't make them free. It kind of really puts them in a, uh, those who successfully escape, puts them in sort of a legal limbo. They're not – the federal government still considers them slaves. Uh, they are the property of their, of their owners, whom they have escaped from. But the federal government can't really return them to their owners at the moment, so we're just going to consider them contraband of war. But what does that mean? Are they – are they to be paid a salary? Are they still slaves? Technically, they are. But are they – but what does that mean? Does that mean the federal government – and by implication, Abraham Lincoln, mm-hmm. does that mean they're, they're the biggest slaveholder in the country? Uh, just because we can't return these folk to uh, to slavery, what is their legal status? So that's real confusing. Uh, and the, the wording of the first Confiscation Act, while on the surface it seemed somewhat direct, it was difficult to implement because the the uh, because Union commanders uh, in the field had various opinions of how this should be enforced how it should be interpreted some were trying to turn slaves away uh, others were uh, accepting escaped slaves uh, trying to say well we we don't really uh, will we'll use them for labor but we don't need all of you so we'll accept some but not others uh, and but that didn't matter what what really mattered was the fact that there were tens of thousands, eventually hundreds of thousands of slaves escaping to the Union lines and demanding a response. Basically, every slave who escaped slavery in those early months, this was a personal declaration of their own freedom. And it forces uh, the Lincoln administration to respond to this in some way. And initially, it's a very confused response. Um, and it's certainly causing confusion on the ground. Uh, What do we do with all these slaves, uh, these escaping slaves? Well, er, uh, in early 1862, a general in Virginia, a fellow by the name of John Dix, he's faced with, well, we can't, we barely have enough food to feed the soldiers. We can't feed all these folks. We can't house them, clothe them. Here's what we're going to do. I want to, and he actually requests permission from uh, the War Department to do this, Uh, he wants to contact uh, northern governors to talk about setting up refugee camps uh, in northern states to have them fed, clothed, employed, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. The very thing that a lot of northerners, in fact, before the war, most northerners feared was that blacks would be be, uh, migrating north, taking their jobs, you know, all of that sort of thing. Um, And uh, even... Governor John Andrew of Massachusetts, uh, even though he's an abolitionist, uh, he makes a trip down to Washington to tell Lincoln personally that he is not to consider uh, Massachusetts to be essentially a dumping ground for <laughs> escaping slaves. Um, because that plays right into the hands of Northern Democrats, who are saying, "Look, if you vote for these Republicans, uh, you know they, they're, and they were typically referred to it as the Black Republican Party, uh, then you're going to have blacks voting and holding office and migrating north and taking your jobs." And and Andrew says, "Well, what Dick, Dick's plan plays right into the Democrats' hands. So you're not going to do that. Uh, in fact, there was one Massachusetts." newspaper that said forthright that, uh, that Massachusetts does not want these escaping slaves. No northern state wants them. And so a lot of people are saying, well, what are these folks escaping from to begin with? Well, they're escaping from slavery. Well, maybe if we give them freedom in the South, maybe they'll stay in the South. Hmm. So that gets sort of the, the, the wheels turning in the minds of a lot of northerners about, well, maybe... maybe <laughs> Maybe maybe slavery was a, it, it is something that needs to be done away with in uh, uh, just for the purpose of preserving the union and sec- and secondarily in some sense but primarily to a lot of a lot of folks keeping sla- uh, keeping black folk in the in the south uh, another difficulty that Lincoln's facing, aside from all of this confusion about what do we do with these tens of thousands and eventually hundreds of thousands of escaping slaves? By the time we get into the spring of 1862, uh, northern recruiting is on the way. There's not a lot of volunteers anymore. south re- is looking at the same difficulty as well, and the Confederacy responds to that by instituting uh, military conscription. Of Lincoln's reluctant to do that, knowing how unpopular it's going to be, because it's, it's pretty clear it's unpopular in the Confederacy as well. But from the beginning of the war, blacks had been trying to volunteer for the Army and had been turned away. The Army had a policy that blacks could not serve in the U.S. military. But their, their manpower is very much needed. So it's largely this, this combination of The the need for black manpower, uh, the confusion over the legal status of these thousands of escaping slaves, uh, along with other issues like diplomatic recognition for the Confederacy from Britain and France that that might come uh, as long as slavery was not uh, an issue in this war, that sort of begins to turn the tide in the spring and summer of 1861, uh, leading Congress in July of 18... or, excuse me, 1862, uh, leading Congress in uh, in July of 1862 to pass the second Confiscation Act, which basically said that any, any slaves escaping from Confederate-supporting slaveholders would henceforth and forever be free. And they also, at the same time, passed a Militia Act, which didn't say anything about the color of soldiers skin which essentially was uh, was giving lincoln permission to recruit black soldiers for the for the union army because their services were so badly needed um, the problem with the second confiscation act from lincoln's perspective he did sign it into law with some reservations a couple of reservations he, well, he wasn't sure how northerners were going to white northerners were going to react to this uh, because he was, he, he he feared that there would be a backlash, which there which there eventually was. Um, he also uh, was concerned about how to how do you enforce this? Um, the act applied only to Confederate supporting slaveholders. Now there were still lots of slaveholders in Missouri, Kentucky, Maryland, states that hadn't seceded from the Union. Um, And there were also uh, slaveholders, of course, in Tennessee. By that time, most of Tennessee was back in Union hands. Southern Louisiana was back in Union hands. Uh, Parts of Northern Virginia, coastal regions of uh, South Carolina, Florida, Georgia, did the act apply to those slaveholders. Uh, It only applied to Confederate-supporting slaveholders. And so what's Lincoln going to do to enforce this? Is he going to put every slaveholder on trial and to determine whether or not they supported secession or not? Well, that's going to be kind of unwieldy. So essentially this is what he comes up with, uh, and the, which becomes the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, largely as an enforcement mechanism for the Second Confiscation Act. Um, and, and he says this, right in the uh, the September 1862 preliminary proclamation, um, as an enforcement measure for the Second Confiscation Act, I'm just going to say, as of January 1st, 1863, any slaves being held behind uh, Confederate lines, we're going to assume those slaveholders to be Confederate-supporting, and all their slaves will be free, henceforth and forever. As Lincoln had anticipated, and he does this to some extent a little hesitantly because he fears a backlash. And sure enough, uh, there's a huge backlash in uh, November, in the November elections, the midterm elections, 1862. Uh, Democrats retake, uh, retake the House of Representatives or uh, gain seats in the House of Representatives. Um, and they may have gained uh, seats in the Senate as well had not... Had popular elections been elected, had uh, popular had had senators been popularly elected at the time uh, didn't become popularly elected until the early 20th century. But anyhow, um, even the Emancipation Proclamation isn't enough to draw uh, enough troops into the Union Army. So. By the spring of 1863, with the midterm elections behind him, and he's hoping the backlash is behind him as well, he does ask Congress for a conscription act, military draft. And when in the, in the summer of 1863, when Lincoln tries to enforce the draft, there are draft riots all over the North. Uh, and although we call these draft riots, they're largely race riots as well uh, in Boston, of course, the biggest one in New York, uh, but there are also disturbances in uh, in Chicago, uh, most of the major cities in the north, a lot of the smaller ones, uh, blacks sort of become the, the target of this white northern backlash against making the war, even in part, a war against slavery. But And, and so Lincoln's kind of having difficulty, about, you know, whether or not he'd done the right thing. Um To one colleague, he admitted that, well, I I had hoped that the Emancipation Proclamation would sort of inspire the nation. He said, but I I think it's done as much harm as good and maybe more harm to the Union war effort. But on the other hand, the effort to try to preserve slavery and preserve the Union at the same time, I think Lincoln was coming increasingly to recognize that that was just an impossible effort. Because if slavery survived the war, well, sure, the Union might be preserved temporarily, but the issues of slavery generally, slavery's expansion in particular, you know, those issues were still going to be there. They weren't going to go away. And would this result in a in some future civil war if slavery remained intact? And what about the slaves themselves? I mean, they're continuing to escape union lines at every every opportunity and that's where the real pressure for emancipation and ultimately the 13th amendment is coming from um and it's not just these escapees uh uh, people who are behind confederate lines still held uh presumptively in slavery uh they're taking every opportunity to undermine the confederacy and slavery in particular Slaveholders are having an increasingly difficult time uh, keeping control of their slaves. Uh, Slaves are beginning to demand wages for their work, uh, um, escaping in larger numbers, uh, but in in some areas not even having to escape to, uh, to, um, to essentially act as if they're free. Uh, they again you know, demand wages for their labor, saying, "Well, look, if you don't pay me wages, I'm just going to escape the union lines. Uh, or if you don't give me you know, beef, uh, you know, more food, better clothing, you know, better house, you know, that sort of thing, making demands on slaveholders, uh, increasingly um, escaping not to the north, but uh, to uh, cities in the south, uh, and uh, and becoming wage earners." Um, undermining the confederacy by helping confederate deserters get back home, uh, helping other sca- uh, other slaves escape uh, and that's a significant undermining factor because there are so many slaves escaping uh, there's so many uh, by eighteen sixty three Uh, Close to half the Confederate army is deserted by 1864. Two-thirds of the Confederate army is absent with or without leave, and Jefferson Davis himself publicly admits that. Um, And a lot of these uh, escaping deserters are getting back home with the help of uh, of slaves. So it's not just escaping slaves who are uh, undermining the Confederacy. It's people who are presumptively remaining in slavery, who are essentially assuming Freedom for themselves, undermining the, the Confederacy. Um, and so, really, by the, the Confederacy, really is fighting a two front war, uh, largely from the beginning. It's, but there's this war against the North that we always hear about. But there's also that war within the confederacy uh, that we that we rarely hear about uh, with blacks undermining the confederacy at every turn uh helping the white deserters and layout gangs and deserter gangs uh, in the process um, and it's you know, the, the confederacy just finds it impossible ultimately to survive this this two front war
0: mm-hmm. did the confederacy make any attempts to police these areas where Newly emancipated. I put "emancipated" in quotes because I doubt the people who owned them thought they were emancipated. Uh, oh yeah, or, and, this yeah. Is, Go ahead. and this
1: this is another thing that undermines the Confederate war effort because slaveholders back home demand that uh, men be kept at home to serve mm-hmm. on slave patrols to keep uh, to keep slaves in check to keep slave resistance down. What that means is. You know, they they don't. Uh, the Confederacy doesn't have enough men to put in the army. Uh, it's kind of short on manpower as it is, and by one estimate, uh, at least 200,000 whites are kept back home to try to keep slaves in sort of a vain effort to keep slaves under control. So that's another thing, another way in which resistant slaves undermine the Confederate war effort.
0: Mm-hmm. And, and what do we know about the, this attempt? I'm just very interested in this attempt to. Uh, you might think of it as like anti-partisan activity. <laughs> you know, what do we know about the way in which that was organized?
1: Uh, I, it, it, I wouldn't say that it was organized in the sense that we think of organization.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, these were largely spontaneous acts of. That, that slaves had largely always, I mean, taken advantage of, you know, pushing freedom uh, to the extent that they could, uh, and it's, during the war they can push it to a, gr- uh, a, a much greater extent because so many whites have been uh, drawn off to the war, uh, women left at home to try to control slaves, mm-hmm. uh, and some doing a better job than others, but but largely uh, slaves taking advantage of the opportunities presented to them to claim uh, bits and pieces of freedom, uh, even though they're not called free at this point. Mm-hmm. Uh, slaves behind Confederate lines are largely acting as, they're, as if they're free long before the, long before the war is over.
0: Mm-hmm. And I wonder what we know about, and I doubt it's very much, the ways in which the black communities themselves talked about people who Emancipated themselves and went north because I mean it seems to me That you know, it's sort of a paradox. You need to stay with your family But on the other hand You want to go and emancipate yourself and contribute to this great cause, which is the freedom of the race
1: Well, that's largely why you find some slaves stayed at home because they don't want to leave their families Uh, Others mostly young unmarried uh, although I, I use the the term marriage" you kind of have to use loosely because uh slave states didn't recognize uh slave marriages in any official capacity uh although they uh, slaves themselves recognized marriage within their own communities um, but you know, they uh, many were married had children you know didn't want didn't want to leave uh but they could help those who who did want to leave. Uh, they uh, sort of operated what, uh, by f- what we would call the Underground Railroad. And well, in, in the, the deeper south he went, the more unofficially that, that, that operated, uh, helping whites escape to the north who, did, who wanted to avoid Confederate entanglements, uh, helping deserters get back home, uh, helping Union prisoners of war escape to the north, so um, largely undermining the Confederate war effort in any way they could even though they were still Mm -hmm. presumptively held in slavery, but but certainly not acting like it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. At the end of your book, you talk
0: about, I don't know what to call it, a broken promise, I suppose, that they were encouraged to emancipate themselves, and then they were emancipated, and they acted as if they were free, and then um, the Union won the war, and then things didn't improve much. Uh,
1: In a practical, well, in a legal sense, uh, that that that's very that's slow in coming. Uh, in a practical sense, it you know, barely comes at all. Of uh, with uh, with the end of Reconstruction, uh, with uh, uh, northern congressional efforts to try to guarantee black voting rights, uh, all but made null by the Ku Klux Klan uh, and Congress. So, sort of by the early 1870s, saying, "Well, okay, if you feel that's you." white southerners if you feel that strongly about it you know fine we won't we won't try to enforce black voting rights or black civil rights in the south we'll just withdraw our armies of occupation and you can do with uh, with blacks as you will uh and they and uh, uh the whole, and largely this has to do with a shared sense of white supremacy between white Northerners and white Southerners. Mm-hmm. White Northerners had, while they had been willing to go to war to preserve the Union, most white Northerners had never really felt comfortable fighting the war on behalf of slaves. I mean, eventually, most white Northerners uh, came to the came to the point that they said, "Well, if we don't do away with slavery." then the issues of slavery's expansion are still going to be there and we don't want any future war of this uh, over this, so yeah, maybe we ought to do away with slavery. But fighting the war on behalf of blacks was not something that white northerners were ever terribly excited about. And so, uh, you know, returning whites to, or returning blacks or allowing southern whites to return blacks to a state of peonage was something that northern white northerners were not terribly uncomfortable with mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's sort of this shared sense of white supremacy between white northerners and white southerners that uh, contributes to blacks sort of been uh, to some extent re-enslaved mm-hmm. by things like um, of, uh, like the uh, convict lease system in which blacks which could just be arbitrarily arrested and, and leased out to big landholders who would Literally worked them to death uh, because they had nothing to lose. Now they were not—they—they uh, they weren't property. They couldn't be bought and sold. Mm-hmm. They could just be worked to death and, and get another convict. Or in in a larger sense, uh, in the sense of uh, sharecropping and and particularly tenant farming, uh, that some historians refer to as the new slavery because it's largely a, a, a largely a debt slavery. Uh, Blacks become indebted after the war to white landholders uh, who control uh, the price of any products they get, the interest rates that they pay, and so just can perpetually keep them in debt, making it illegal for them to leave. Mm-hmm. I remember one uh, uh, one former slave said, well, you know, tenancy was much like slavery in that if you wanted to get away from it, you had to escape.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's very interesting. Uh, David, we've taken up a lot of your time, and I, I really appreciate it, and I want to thank you for writing I Freed Myself, uh, African-American self-emancipation in the Civil War era. I, I want to conclude the, er, the interview by asking you to address our traditional final question on new books in history, and that is, uh, what are you working on now?
1: Well, I'm kicking around a couple of ideas. Um, one, uh, Mercer University Press has been after me to do this for a while. Uh, it's been more than 60 years since uh, anyone did a general overview of the state of Georgia during the Civil War. So I'm going to be working on that over uh, over the next couple of years. Uh, then I'm not sure what direction I'll go. Um, one thing that has uh, has kind of really intrigued me uh, has been... Uh, The food situation in the South that uh, planters were growing way too much cotton, not nearly enough food, food prices were were skyrocketing, resulting in uh, food riots, particularly conducted by women all over the South. Mm -hmm. Most people have heard of the Richmond riot, but there were dozens of riots uh, throughout the South that. Not a lot of research has been has been done on, so I'm I'm thinking about something along those lines in the, in the future. But we'll we'll see, we'll just see where that goes. Mm-hmm. Well, good luck with
0: those projects, and again, David, thank you very much for being on the show. I right. thank you for having me. I really enjoyed. it. Absolutely, and let me say to everyone who listens to New Books in History and the other podcasts in the New Books Network, thank you for tuning in. If that's what you do, I'm not sure what you do in the age of podcast downloading, I guess. But in any event, I hope everybody has a great week.